shall we? So we're going to start uh, talking about mood disorders today. I'm hoping we can get quite a way through it. Uh, we probably won't finish up with mood disorders, but uh, we'll get as far as we can. Um, so first of all, um, mood disorders are going to come in two broad flavors. Uh, unipolar, uh, what we call major depression, and bipolar uh, disorders. So the key thing here is that both of these disorders have depression uh, as one of the symptoms. Uh, in bipolar disorder, as you know, we're just essentially adding in the manic phases to the depression. Um, what will happen, what we'll see is that there are two types of bipolar disorder. One where depression is the primary symptom and the other where ma uh, mania is the primary symptom. And in, the, in those cases, the opposite symptom is uh, less intense. Um, about 15% uh, of uh, men 15% uh, of men will experience a depressive disorder at some point uh, in their life, um, and about 24% of women. So uh, quite high prevalence. Uh, one of the reasons why I, I sort of start out with this disorder, because it's the one you're most likely to see on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, when we, uh, when uh, I was talking about college response, which is the screening program that's run by Screening for Mental Health. That's one of those programs that we uh, could do for the uh, service learning project. Um, they screened 600 colleges at 600 colleges last year. Um, 37,000 uh, students were screened in person. 48,000 were screened online. And um, that showed a quite high uh, prevalence. Now, obviously, this is skewed by the fact that it's those people that are either doing the screening uh, in person or going online to do it. Plus, the people, some of the people that go online are probably just trying to mess with it. But, um, but still, uh, it's it's a serious problem on college campuses, uh, especially. So, so what do we tend to see in terms of? Um, uh, symptomology of depression. You know, what are the things you associate with depression? Suicide, good. Uh, disinterest in previously enjoyable activities or lack of enjoyment of those activities. I, isolation and withdrawal, yeah, yeah. Yeah, from from uh, people. Um, um, uh, there can be disturbances in sleep either way, either uh, hypersomnia or hyposomnia, either sleeping too much or sleeping too little. Yeah. Good. Okay. So there is an association between substance use and uh, depression. Um, it's unclear what that association is, but um, there's definitely an association. Although I'll say that there's an association with substance use and lots of the psychological disorders. Um, one of the primary ones that you'll see is feelings of worthlessness. But now all these things that you've identified so far, for the most part, have been what we call the retarded symptoms, the um, withdrawal, the um, sadness, sleeping too much, things like that. And uh, But as I said, it's important to recognize that depression can also be seen in terms of what are known as agitated symptoms, um, pacing. Um, and that's, you know, really this kind of experience where someone is ruminating, you know, they'll be ruminating in their mind, um, they'll be anxious, their mind will be going at a mile a minute, they'll be pacing. You know, it'll almost look like mania, but it's, um, but it's depression. Um, 
pulling on things, you know, pulling on your hair or picking at your skin is one of the agitated symptoms. And oftentimes people will just sort of suddenly shout. It's not the same as like Tourette's syndrome or a verbal tick, but um, they'll suddenly, you know, their anxiety will cause them to suddenly say something like, I didn't do that. Right? And, you know, this rumination that's going on in their head causes them to have to verbally express that frustration. Right? Yeah. Yeah, sense of being overwhelmed with daily activities. Sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, this well, yeah. We use that terminology when we talk about um, schizophrenia, and I kind of mixed it up. But these would be considered the negative symptoms, and these would be considered the positive symptoms. You know, positive being there's something there, and negative being there's something taken away. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we typically see um, depressed mood, what we call dysphoria. Um, we, you really identified most of those things already. Um, and um, we talked about anhedonia, um, loss of interest in previously uh, enjoyable things. Um, there's something that was identified by Aaron Beck, who's one of the main figures in uh, studying depression. Uh, Beck developed what's called the Beck Depression Inventory, which is one of the questionnaire formats that's used in diagnosis. And um, he called this the uh, depressive triad. Um, the idea that um, it is um, a problem of self, and a problem of environment and a problem of future. Um, that um, we have this sense that there's something wrong with us as an individual. We have this sense that there's something wrong with our interaction with the environment and a sense that um, there's something wrong with our sense of the future, our hopefulness for the future. And he says when those three things, you know, you can have a, a couple of these things and not go into a depression. But he says when you have all those three things, it really, um, really drags people down. So that's sort of the um, kind of cognitive idea about um, your thoughts about the self, your thoughts about the environment, your thoughts about the future are all very distorted. Uh, you don't really see yourself as yourself really is. You see yourself as a depressed self or as a worthless self. You don't see the environment as the environment really is. You see the environment as threatening or the environment as uh, uh, undesirable. And you don't see the future as the future really is. You see the future as bleak or um, hopeless. Typically, we also see um, just a real slowing down of cognitive processes during depression. People just think a lot slower. And you'll see this uh, reflected in the um, Unquiet Mind memoir that we're reading. Um, you'll see how her depression really slows down her thinking. Um, and it tends uh, to be not so much of a problem on short-term tasks that people can complete right away. But when things drag out for a long time, uh, again, that sense of um, worthlessness is going to start to pervade that. And it's going to be difficult to sort of plan for things in the future because uh, the future just seems so bleak sometimes. Um, you know, we don't often, we don't often uh, associate anxiety with depression, but again, even with the uh, retarded form of depression, as well as the agitated form, people will experience this anxiety, partly because they remember how they used to be and they're not like they used to be, and um, that's going to raise a lot of anxiety for people. And as you said, uh, suicide uh, is an unfortunate um, 
consequence of depression sometimes and suicidal ideation, thoughts of if I'm so worthless, you know, why am I even bothering taking up space on this planet? I'm using up resources that other more useful people could use, so I should just die, right? Now, suicidal ideation is a long way from uh, planning or, uh, or actually attempting suicide, but it's the first stage. So, You know, that's one of the things that um, we don't talk about that much in, in this class that I think it's important to stress. These diseases, these disorders are chronic disorders that go on and on and on for people and oftentimes fatal disorders. So, um, you know, it's hard to really grasp the seriousness of, uh, of these disorders sometimes unless you think of them like cancer um, and think of it as like cancer before we had very good treatments for cancer. You know, where treatments for cancer are getting better and better, but there was a time when if you had cancer, it was really bleak. Um, and in the same way, uh, our treatments are getting better for uh, mental illness, but there are some mental illnesses where the treatments uh, are difficult. And so um, the, uh, the chronic nature of these diseases and the um, sometimes fatal nature is uh, something I like to talk about. So those are the symptoms in terms of cognition and affect. Behaviorally, um, we tend to see uh, behavior changes in uh, movement and speech typically. And it's either going to be retarded, slowed down, or agitated, speeded up. Right? And it can go either way. So it's going to be a difficult diagnosis just observing those behavioral traits. Um, you're going to have to go into cognition and affect to try to figure out uh, if it's uh, uh, depression. Um, somatic symptoms, we talked about this. Uh, disturbed sleep, uh, either uh, hypersomnia or hyposomnia. So people will either sleep too much or they'll have insomnia, wake up too early, can't get back to sleep. Um, uh, one piece of data from uh, sleep disorders is that more serious kind of clinical depression tends to be associated more with um, waking up uh, too early rather than not being able to go to sleep, for example. Um, and um, there's not, you know, again, it's an association. It's not, it's not causal relationship, but um, those, those disturbances tend to be associated with more uh, serious depression. Um, we talked about eating, and uh, we didn't talk about uh, loss of libido. Um, oftentimes associated with depression, just lack of interest in sex. Um, and general sort of uh, somatic kinds of uh, problems. Oftentimes just um, being tired all the time, lethargy, um, pains, uh, joint pain, uh, aches in the body. And again, uh, these are oftentimes the more prevalent symptoms in some cultures. For example, in East Asian cultures, you'll typically see these somatic symptoms and not the affective uh, uh, symptoms that we typically associate with depression. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, do they not experience them or is it um, something in the culture that makes it undesirable to report them? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. I am not aware of that, but I could imagine. It's 
not one of the side effects of the antidepressants. Uh, that's anecdotal evidence. I haven't seen any research evidence looking at it. Um, anytime you're adding stress, you're compromising the immune system. So these are stressful disorders to have. So I can, I can see how stress, but I don't think it's depression specifically, but more the stress associated with depression that would, uh, that would uh, cause some immune uh, dysfunction. Yeah. There are some uh, subtypes of depression. The one you've probably heard of is SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder. Living in Oregon is a tough thing to do in the winter. Um, what it typically tends to be related to is uh, just basically when the sun goes down earlier in the winter and it doesn't come up till later, um, those long nights in the winter tend to be associated with um, higher rates of depression. Um, and that is confirmed by the idea that um, the seasonality is reversed in the southern hemisphere. So we see it more in November, December, January, February in the northern hemisphere and more in June, July, August in the southern hemisphere, right? Uh, their winter, essentially. About 1% of people, the general population, will uh, have seasonal affective disorder. And it tends to be more intense as you get further away from the equator. So, um, uh, you know, the sort of, uh, what do they call it? Scandinavian, Slavic, um, Norwegian areas tend to have high rates of uh, seasonal affective disorder. Uh, Postpartum depression is considered one of the subtypes of depression. Uh, and again, the prevalence is about 1% among um, people who, uh, uh, women who have had children. Um, do you have any more data on that than I don't? Um, our figures are more like um, 30 to 45%. Your figures in terms of what? Uh, what's who, who's, who's our? Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, okay. I'd like to see that uh, clinical data if you can get it together. Yeah. Uh, the um, and I don't know how. Probably in that uh, chapter of the DSM, it has the uh, diagnostic features of um, the subtype. Probably, yeah. Most likely, yeah. Um, let's take a look at. Um, a video clip of a fellow who uh, I think he has a major depressive disorder and um, uh, well, we can chat about it after. What's it like to be depressed? What does it feel like internally in those times when you are very depressed? 
You're absolutely alone. Oh, you feel you are alone. You feel absolute worthlessness. Mm -hmm. You feel that there's no hope uh, in the future. Um, there's, there's, uh, you, you believe everything is dissolving. Um, you feel your, ma your marriage may be dissolving, relationships with children may be dissolving, um, all this kind of thing. And you feel that, that you can never get back to being a member of a community. When were you first officially diagnosed as having major depression? Not until age 48. Can you tell me about that? You want that diagnosis? You want me to lead up to it a little bit? Whatever is comfortable for you. I think that um, in college, I was I could be on the dean's list, or would I would they bounce me that semester from the school? Uh, and that was again, I think, depression. Um, when I graduated, I I was teaching, um, and I began to feel I was the world's worst teacher. Um, I felt worthless. I felt um, that I, I didn't deserve anything. Um, life, I didn't deserve life. Um, mm -hmm. And I, well, if you can't teach, you become an administrator. So I got <laughs> a master's degree in, in uh, uh, education, administration, and uh, became a principal. And after a short period of time, thought that I was the world's worst principal. Um, in, in the meantime, I was married. We had two children. Probably my wife said that I just wasn't functioning. So really, uh, you know, one of the things that that illustrates real well is that very extreme, you know, the world's worst teacher, the world's worst administrator, right? That very dichotomous thinking that um, is characteristic of the uh, depressive disorders. Uh, when we think about disorders, one of the things that uh, we have to think about and talk about is um, where do they come from? Uh, what's causing them? And so uh, when we think about those theories, we're going to explore um, mostly all three of these um, biological theories about where these disorders come from. Uh, the psychological aspects of these disorders, that is um, people's effective coping mechanisms and their ability to deal with them uh, effectively, and then the social aspects. So uh, the interpersonal, intergroup, uh, relational kinds of aspects uh, of these disorders that may lead up to these disorders or may cause them. Um, I'm going to pause and I'm going to and then, you know, of course, we always have to talk about the biopsychosocial model and how these things all function together. Um, I'm going to pause this for just a second. So let's talk about biology. Um, first of all, genetics. Um, when we do genetic studies for psychological disorders, what we look at is what's called the concordance rates uh, for twins. So how likely is it that a pair of twins will have these, uh, this disorder? Um, and so we look at monozygotic twins, right? Monozygotic meaning same DNA, one egg, one sperm, same DNA. Uh, dizygotic meaning what? Two eggs, two sperm, different genes, same intrauterine environment, right? So fraternal, you call these commonly fraternal twins and these are commonly called identical twins, right? So uh, among monozygotic twins, we see a concordance rate of, depending on the study you look at, uh, somewhere between uh, 40 and 55 percent, 54 percent. But in dizygotic twins, that concordance rate goes way down and it approaches the general population. So um, there's pretty strong evidence that uh, there is some genetic predisposition involved in um, uh, depression and mood disorders. We do see an even stronger link, though, uh, with genetics in bipolar disorder. 
So we're seeing that kind of play out in the um, Unquiet Mind book that we're reading. There are some differences in brain function, um, particularly in the prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex tends to show reduced activity. The amygdala tends to show uh, reduced activity. These can actually show either reduced activity or too much activity, uh, but um, the more common is to show lower activities. We also have some indications that there may be some neurotransmitter dysfunctions involved in depression. And so um, particularly they're looking at, uh, researchers are looking at the monoamine class of neurotransmitters. So um, serotonin, um, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that you should associate with pleasure. Um, you stimulate the dopamine producing areas in the brain, uh, you get a feeling of euphoria. Um, we think that that's related to uh, substance use disorders too. Um, serotonin uh, is a neurotransmitter that is very calming, has a very calming effect. And um, the notion is that there's too little serotonin available um, for individuals who have depression. So when we treat them with, and the reason that we think that's the case, we treat them with drugs that helps increase the level of serotonin that's available and they get better. So um, there's, probably a, there's probably a link there. Um, you've probably heard of one of the treatments for depression, SSRI drugs. Have you heard of that? Um, selective serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitor. Um, and essentially what that does is it leaves more serotonin in the synapse of uh, between two neurons um, so that there's more available to be used. It inhibits the reuptake process. This is getting back into intropsych and what you learned about neurobiology. Um, I'll go into this in a little more detail. And the, another class is called the MAOIs. monoamine um, oxidase inhibitors. And what these do is instead of uh, inhibiting the reuptake of serotonin back into the um, axon terminal between the, between the neurons, this is inhibiting the action of this monoamine oxidase, which is an enzyme that breaks down the neurotransmitters in the synapse. So it keeps those neurotransmitters from getting broken down and so that they can be used on the receptor sites again. So these are biological explanations for why, uh, how serotonin might be involved and how we can intervene and help people maintain higher levels of serotonin. And people generally tend to show good uh, responses to the SSRI class. The MAOIs aren't used much anymore um, because uh, they have a lot of interactive effects with over-the-counter drugs, other prescription drugs, and foods. So you may see, if you pick up like um, uh, medicine over-the-counter and you look on the back under the warnings, uh, fairly frequently you'll see uh, do not use if you're taking an MAOI. Um, so these aren't used so much anymore. Those were an earlier class of antidepressants. The SSRIs are the uh, more uh, recent class of antidepressants. Okay. So psychological explanations. Uh, here we go with Aaron Beck. Uh, Beck says, uh, how you think is a very important component in how you feel. 
thinking, that is cognition, is directly related to affect. And um, what he says is we learn these patterns of thinking in childhood that result in um, negative affect. Uh, for one thing, um, negative self-schemas, the idea that we generally tend to think of ourselves as not adequate or inadequate or not good people, not good children. Um, this sort of constant uh, rumination about negative thoughts rather than positive thinking. Um, and then just basically when you think about the environment, when you think about the world, uh, you, you are distorting the, the perception. You know, the reality is different. The objective reality to other objective observers is different than your distorted perception of, uh, of the world. Um, and so, what, as I said, what he'll say is there's this cognitive triad where these negative views of the self and of the environment and of the future all combine to really um, create this really intense, uh, sad experience, just very um, deep sadness, um, worthlessness, hopelessness. So, um, you know, there is something about um, looking on the bright side of life, you know, um, but that's not necessarily a way out of depression. Um, but those people who may have that more optimistic view, especially early in life, may be more, uh, maybe less likely to develop depression later in life. So, um. you know how to improve your mood? Um, put a pencil between your between your teeth. Um, yeah, yeah, fascinating research. Um, basically, activating the muscles that are involved with smiling uh, causes measurable changes in uh, in mood. Yeah. So there you go. Maybe. Maybe. So, um, what do other, besides Beck, what do other people say? Well, first of all, there's uh, Seligman's uh, explanation about learned helplessness. Marty Seligman is a um, psychologist. I think he's at Yale now. And um, what he discovered was um, when you put uh, an organism, in this case he, his classic experiment used dogs, when you put them in a situation where they can't escape from some unpleasant stimulus, they will eventually just lie down and like not bother trying to escape anymore. And then what becomes even more bizarre is if you give them the ability to escape, they won't even use it. Right. So it's this idea that you just learn that you're helpless to avoid being, uh, in this case, shocked. They were using shock with dogs. Um, the um, another, uh, not necessarily. It depends on how uh, valuable the outcome of the research is, and you know how uh, damaging it is. Yeah. Uh, pretty well regarded, yeah, quite highly regarded, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, demonstrated and replicated on numerous, uh, in numerous different environments, numerous different organisms. And he's still around? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yale, I think. Yeah, Martin Seligman. Um, not really. She's um, generally considered to be uh, I have what's something called the Stockholm Syndrome, but um, uh, yeah, uh, where you begin to identify with your captors. Um, but that syndrome has not very good empirical support. So, um, 
Another uh, explanation from the psychological perspective is that um, we have, um, in, we all have different styles of attribution. Um, what's attribution mean? Yeah, that's why I asked. Okay. Okay. So, a framework perhaps for understanding and describing causal relationships. Um, and it is highly subjective. And so, what uh, one of the psychological theories is that um, we have different kind of kinds of attribution styles on different kinds of uh, dimensions. So some of us attribute our successes and our failures to more internal qualities, our uh, ability, our strength, uh, or our inability or our weakness. Others attribute uh, their successes and failures more to external attributes. Well, I just got lucky or, um, you know, that test was just too hard. Right. Um, stability and instability is another domain where they're looking at attributional styles. Some people tend to um, attribute their behavior to more stable factors. Others attribute their behavior to more unstable factors. And global and uh, specific attributions are another factor. So um, some people will make global attributions about themselves and others will make more specific domain-dependent attributions, right? So some people might globally perceive their themselves as more uh, externally influenced. Their locus of control is more external, and um, they don't have control over their events and the environment. You know, their life is kind of subject to the whim of the environment. And that, you know, is going to lead to certain kinds of thinking and certain kinds of attitudes. Um, and then also uh, interpersonal factors. Um, time and time again, uh, this is going to come up. Uh, social support. Um, research on uh, clinical disorders time and time again shows the value of social support in positive outcomes from mental illness. And you'll see that theme actually come up in An Unquiet Mind too. Um, so uh, what we see in people with depression is they tend to have smaller social support networks and those social support networks tend to be less supportive of recovery and perhaps even encouraging of uh, disability or, or, or illness. Um, we tend to see less supportive families in people with depression and, um, uh, you know, it's a bummer to be around someone who's depressed. Right. So um, again, these aren't causal factors. They, there's probably there's an association. There's a, probably a complex interaction of these uh, of these factors. But we do tend to see these things uh, more associated with depression. That's what I mean. It's interactive. Yeah. Yeah. Either from their by their own design or by just the progress of the illness, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
it it depends where you are. Yeah, there are there are support groups in uh, mostly in major cities, but certainly not in the rural areas. Yeah. Um, so biopsychosocial model. Um, so social factors that have uh, that are related with depression. Certainly socioeconomic status, and we'll see this over and over again in uh, mental illness. Uh, people with, in lower socioeconomic status groups have higher rates of uh, mental illness. Uh, what's up with the idea that women tend to have higher rates of these disorders? I gave you the statistics earlier, and uh, so women are you know, basically about twice as likely to have um, two to three times as likely to have these disorders. Um, one idea is the high rates of sexual assault. Um, with women, the statistics are about one in four by the time they reach 18 will uh, have been sexually assaulted. Men have about um, half that, uh, you know, it's about double. And so uh, one in seven for men. So there may be uh, something related to sexual assault that may have a factor. And then physical assaults. Um, so uh, women, obviously, uh, women tend to be more likely to be the victims of uh, domestic violence, uh, whereas men oftentimes tend to be uh, more involved in uh, public fighting, for example. Um, so, you know, that domestic violence is more sort of shaming. Um, the public violence is more sort of um, from an aspect of sort of um, masculinity and protecting masculinity. So, uh, and the idea that here that women in uh, domestic violence situations, the person who's uh, beating them is typically a trusted individual. So you've put your trust in someone, they've betrayed that trust, and that's extraordinarily disrupting um, psychologically. Um, there's also some interesting uh, hypotheses about the effects of industrialization. Um, the idea that uh, depression rates have increased historically, uh, partly because uh, we've moved more away from our own individual subsistence production and more into this, um, uh, uh, you're becoming more of a cog in the machine, right? And you become less individualized, more de-individualized, and that can be uh, disturbing. Industrialization also tends to show, um, tends to lead to uh, increases in the divide between the rich and the poor, and that can exacerbate um, depression. And in uh, Western culture, there are also some hypotheses about the idea that it is not acceptable in this culture to be sad. Um, this culture expects you to be happy, to be um, productive, to be up, to be doing things. Uh, and guess what? In bipolar disorder, in those manic phases, you're looking good in those terms, right? Um, but in the depression phases, you look like crap, right? So. Um, so our sort of Western cultural expectations may feed into these things too. Um, we expect to be happy. We don't expect to be unhappy. Um, any ideas on this? Questions? They're associational, yeah. There's no causal relationships here. Um, and some of these are hypotheses rather than actual research. Um, you know, this is this doesn't get supported. This hasn't been uh, studied that much. Uh, there's a lot more study here um, that uh, shows some associations. Yeah, that's... 
That's a good hypothesis, and it would be worth uh, trying to look at, yeah. Yeah. Um, extended families can be beneficial if they're supportive extended families. That's, you know, there's all kinds of variables in there. That's part of the problem. Yeah, it's just uh, so difficult to randomly assign children to being either in a um, attachment, a secure attachment, or an insecure attachment group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alternative hypotheses, yeah. difficult to generalize that view to every individual and every family, right, and every culture. So it just, you know, deserves more research. Yay! That makes more jobs for researchers. Um, hold on just a second. Um, are you... Uh, can you guys stick around for about seven minutes or so? Everybody okay with that? Um, I've just got one more uh, clip that I'd like to show you. Um, this is a clip uh, from um, a new, I think it was from like a news show or documentary in Australia. And it's about a woman uh, with uh, bipolar disorder. And um, she, uh, it's about her descent into the disorder and then about uh, her recovery uh, from it. So I think it's a worthwhile way to end the class today. And then when we pick up um, on next class, we'll talk more about treatments uh, for the disorders, okay? So hopefully this will play okay. the second in a family of four and the only girl. She was always vivacious and bright. She was a good sport, very, very good runner and she loved drawing. Kate's background is quite similar to mine, middle class. She went to a private school, grew up in Monsman, quite, you know, a, a privileged upbringing. That's the judge. 
and her, her mum, although it didn't, didn't really work when we were younger, but um, it was a counsellor in Austin. Kate and I met when I first started at the Retro, we were about 10 years old. I remember we were really young, but being instantly attracted to Kate. She's one of those girls who was always a real all-rounder. She was really good at school, obviously very talented at art, great at sports, really popular and funny, really funny. One of the reasons why I love Kate because she's just, she's just, she lights up the room when she walks into the room. Kate O'Connor had it all. After excelling in her high school certificate, her future looked like the rest of her life had been full of promise and reward. Then six months into university, things started to go terribly wrong. Kate came home from a, a skiing holiday in her first year of university. She was 18 and a half. And she was behaving very strangely. I just thought that she was becoming a bit moody. She was also becoming a bit more eccentric in the way that she um, dressed and, and the sort of the things that she said. I'd noticed towards the end of the ski trip that things started to look and even feel really different. I hadn't really slept much on the ski trip and um, was finding it really difficult to sleep. The mood swings became so erratic that week that she was a, a, could be friendly one minute and magnificently groomed, which was most unusual for um, a university student and her particular style anyway, to uh, a screaming charlatan with language you couldn't, you, you wouldn't find in some of the worst streets in the world. We had a, a university party and Kate and I ended up having five, which was really quite unusual for us. Like we've been friends for nearly 20 years now and we, we don't have the sort of friendship where we fight. I was really scared because, you know, I was petrified about losing my best friend and thought, you know, I wasn't quite sure about what the future held. What Sue O'Connor found that night in the gutter outside their family home petrified her too. It was a freezing August night and it was three in the morning and she was Obviously, you'd have to say almost insane, um, raving. It was almost like I was talking in tongues to a degree, but I was actually, you know, sprouting words and passages from the Bible and really felt like I was, my mission was being interrupted. I was the enemy and she lashed out and though she didn't want to come in and it was screaming and yelling and telling me to whatever, you know, get out. I was lying in bed, I just wasn't sure what was happening. So uh, I, was bit, I, was, I was more upset because of mum and dad becoming upset. And it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Freezing on the outside and like a rod of ice put through you because I felt I, I have to do something. And what do you do? Kate's father forced it into a car.
she always used to say, where's the car, where's the car, have you got the car, is it outside, come on, let's go. And I would seriously contemplate how I could get her past the guards and past the security to get her into the car and go up the coast and everything would be fine. Because I just thought my friend doesn't belong in this place, it's a horrible. Kate O'Connor was eventually diagnosed with bipolar disorder, or manic depression, as it used to be known. Hers was one of the most extreme forms of the condition, dominated by manic and delusional highs, then followed by crashing lows. Depression is one of the most debilitating aspects of this disorder. The news was shattering for Sue O'Connor, whose own mother was bipolar. It's a disease that can be up to 70% genetic. Episodes can often start with psychotic behaviour. Sue felt guilty for passing on the gene to her only daughter. I think I've dealt with that. Um, I felt that it was my fault. I had passed this on. And yes, I have. Um, but heavens, um, my mother had had it passed on to her. Kate got that gene. She also got a bunch of really good genes. I was depressed and I was still in hospital and then I came out and I was like, what was that all about? And I, I still, I think, um, you know, definitely in retrospect, was not convinced deep down that I had a real condition. For five years, after that first devastating episode, Kate was well and life continued as it had been. She started painting and finished university qualifying in design and visual communications. She convinced herself she did not have bipolar disorder and would never have to return to hospital. Then one morning, she started to feel invincible. Her creativity knew no bounds. 48 hours later, she was on a mission. I would never have said that I was God, but one necessarily was the Virgin Mary. Um, as such, I'm just very closely linked to being on a mission for God. Maybe one of, you know, maybe I was John. Maybe when I was, I was one of, um, you know, John the Baptist. <laughs> Kate was scheduled once again into a psychiatric hospital. She hated being there and thought it was all a conspiracy. She escaped three times by climbing over the fence. We heard that there were sightings of her down at, at the docks um, in Balmain. And so we spent, I don't know, the whole day driving around. I'd been in Balmain and I'd walked down to the shores at, um, I guess it's Roselle Bay or just, just there, and had gone asking if someone could just take me on a boat out of the country. I mean, most of them just sort of have the shores, so <laughs> I just don't I didn't want to go home and get my passport and fly out of the country because I knew that there'd probably be someone waiting there for me. She jumped in the harbour and would have been swimming. So I, uh, I, I had no idea why, what was going through her head, but she was cold and wet, so she got in his truck and fell asleep. When he found her, he, she wouldn't say who she was or where she belonged, um, but eventually he, he must have been able to get my phone number from her. By the time Sue O'Connor arrived, Kate was gone. Hours later, dishevelled and disoriented, Kate knocked on a stranger's door. They took her to hospital after she complained of having a microchip implanted in her brain. We arrived soon after and she was still thinking that she had the chip in her brain but somehow it had come from the brain onto a finger and um, I think she had a heart monitor on her finger so when you spoke to her she wouldn't speak to you she'd speak through the finger so we'd go hello how are you that sort of thing which was <laughs> quite bizarre i thought that that was like the wife which i could <laughs> speak to them and so i had a lot of people entertained but guys turn it down <laughs> and yeah, it was pretty funny and flick and dave saw the whole thing going do you remember Kate O'Connor continued to fight the diagnosis of bipolar disorder and over the next two years had three more psychotic episodes. One was on the Greek island of Santorini. 
one thing that's common with campus is you think you're invincible and you can spend as much as you want and you started spending and more partying and less sleeping which led to um, a bomb ready to explode. After the last episode, Kate went through another crushing period of depression. By now, she'd had five major psychotic episodes. It had interfered with her life, her career, and her relationships. It's just amazing, you know, how we um, kept up with stamina and those holidays. <laughs> One of the constants throughout her illness has been her best friend, Felicity.
it's not the end of the world. It doesn't mean the end of your life as you know it. I hope one day she finds a lovely partner who will support her and she can live her life as she would like. Um, and I see great signs of that happening now. She has, she's blossomed and long made love. So, you know, uh, a real, uh, illustrates some really uh, salient points that we made here. You know, the idea that there's probably um, a genetic relationship, um, the idea that it tends to be a chronic disorder that, um, uh, that exists over time, uh, and the importance of social support, certainly, um, you know, and having that supportive context, uh, you know, even allows her to, uh, discontinued medication for a while um, and have somebody that's going to watch out for her. Sorry that took uh, more of the time than I thought it would. Um, so I'll see you, I guess, on uh, next Friday again. One of those days. Um, the 8th, the Friday the 8th, you're scheduled to have a midterm exam. I won't be here, but I'll schedule someone else to administer it for me. So. Yeah, there will be, uh, about a week ahead of time. Yeah, I'll probably bring a copy into class too, yeah. Yeah, yeah.